New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Today I'm hosting Dr. Dean Radin, and he is the Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And he's also the author of many books, including The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. Dean, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you. I'd like to ask you, as a scientist, tell us, what is a basis for magic? When you look at the history of science, you find that what used to be considered supernatural was everything, right? Before people had an idea of how anything worked, it was all gods or God that were making things happen. Eventually, people began to notice that there were certain regularities out there that seemed to be independent of supernatural contexts, but it was still not very well understood. An example is something like uh, magnetite, meaning a natural form of magnetism. You'd find that if you take a little sliver of it and you float it on water, that it would always point in one direction. No one knew how that could be. In fact, they didn't know for another seven or 800 years after people invented the compass what it was. And in many ways, we still don't really understand what magnetism is, but we at least have a name for it and have mathematics for it. So supernatural worldview got split off into a natural worldview, but it was called natural magic because it wasn't understood. As science developed, the magic part of it fell away. So alchemy turned into chemistry, astrology turned into astronomy, herbalism turned into pharmaceuticals. And the transition in each case was that the magical elements of it began to go away the more and more we actually understood. So the reason why I'm writing something about magic, real magic, is because, interestingly, all of these forms of natural magic involved consciousness. The alchemists knew that their intention and consciousness was an important point of when they were to do some kind of a chemical process, their intention was part of it. Same goes for astrologers, same goes for herbalists. Their intention is a very important piece of of what they're trying to do. And yet, science has stripped all of that away. Science now assumes, when you're trained as a scientist, your intention is irrelevant. In fact, not only is it irrelevant, but when you do a measurement, the assumption is that when you measure something, it is not changing the thing at all. Maybe in the quantum mechanical world, it's a little bit different. But in the world of everyday science, you always assume that your measurement is not changing the, the thing that you're measuring. Well, maybe that's true, maybe it's not so true. Because if it is correct that, that consciousness is actually wrapped into our basic epistemologies, then any time you make a measurement at any level, it is in fact changing the thing that you're measuring. By the same token, when your intention, when you do the measurement, probably also has an effect. These are pretty subtle effects, But these things have been studied in the laboratory, and we know that both attention and intention make a difference in terms of basically anything that you care to measure. 
So that just leads me to the question, can mathematics alone explain the workings of reality, of what we call reality? Well, surprisingly, there are some mathematicians who believe that reality is mathematics. Others will say that reality is composed of information, which is an abstract mathematical idea. Others still say that uh, reality is composed of symbols and semiotics. So this is now the leading edge of science, where you find that scientists are beginning to get puzzled by and try to account for this strange thing between internal experience versus the objective outer world. They're coming around to a notion which is a very ancient one, which is that the world is not fundamentally made out of physics. It's made out of something below physics. And so you find now that there are conferences on emergent quantum mechanics. And what are we emerging from? But that's the question. We seem to be emerging from something that is very different than the physical world as science has been studying for the last couple of hundred years. So you're saying like the hierarchy has been going from physics to chemistry to biology to psychology, mind, and then consciousness at the top. You're saying that there's something below physics and that is consciousness. Right. The hierarchy that you just described is like a pyramid where consciousness pops up out of the top. It pops up out of the brain activity or something. And I'm calling that little c. It's consciousness with a little c. But the awareness part of that is not easily accounted for by anything in that, that hierarchy. Materialist science cannot describe very well where experience comes from, awareness. So maybe all we need to do is take exactly that same way that we carve up the world in different disciplines and have the whole thing sit on awareness. So now we're proposing that below physics there's another layer, which is what the esoteric literature tells us. And that layer has something to do with a primordial form of awareness that permeates everything. I'm trying to remember something from your book. It's a quote from Thomas Nagel from New York University in his book, Mind and Cosmos. Let me read this. It is highly implausible that life as we know it is a result of the sequence of physical accidents together with mechanism of natural selection. My skepticism is not based on religious belief or on a belief in any definite alternative. I realize that such doubts will strike many of us as outrageous, but that is because almost everyone in our secular culture has been browbeaten into regarding the reductive research program as sacrosanct. So he's saying that it's implausible that it's all spontaneously coming out of some sort of physical accidents that come together and make biology and so forth. There's something else going on underneath this, and that's what you're calling awareness. Is that right? Right. Is so it? the counter-argument is that we don't have a very good grasp of billions of years of time. And so the Earth is around roughly 4 billion years old. It had 4 billion years to be in a dynamic open system with the sun putting energy on us and chemicals mixing and so on. Could that give rise to something as complex as humans? Well, maybe it could. I mean, evolution looks like a pretty good theory. It works pretty well. There's some gaps in it, but the overall, it's pretty good. So why does that not then arise into consciousness as we experience it? And the answer is that none of that describes how all of this physical matter can have an internal experience. 
Science is really good at looking at the outer world, but it doesn't even imagine that there's an inner world. Well, we all know what the inner world is. It's what we experience. It's the thing that they call me. Well, science doesn't know how to describe that. So as more and more scientists begin to look at this issue, which is up until recently mainly only in the realm of philosophy or religion, we begin to wonder, well, how do we account for something as strange and apparently not physical as internal experience? That's what gives rise to this notion of maybe, yeah, maybe billions of years of evolution could give rise to something as complex as a human shape. But the experience maybe before evolution, before any physicality at all, it's like some background fabric of reality that simply has this property that we call awareness. Science likes to quantify things and measure things, and the inner world up until now has not been easily measured. Are you able to do experiments that start to chip away at being able to quantify this in some way? Well, an anesthesiologist can turn your awareness on and off. So that sometimes uses an argument saying that, well, clearly it's a brain thing because you switched off the brain unless the brain can be thought of more like a radio receiver. So if you turn off, you take out certain components in the radio receiver, it doesn't hear anything anymore. So that doesn't really describe what's going on here. We don't yet have a way of clearly saying, you have 2.3 units of consciousness <laughs> and you have 1.5. There are people who claim that they can somehow sense that, but this is still an internal subjective experience. We don't have any objective way. In fact, it was known even from the time of Alan Turing that one of the main differences between a robot or a very fancy artificial intelligence and a human was that we infer that other humans are aware because we have our own awareness, but we at some point will start to encounter machines that will behave so much like humans that we can't tell if they're aware or not. And this is part of the same question that you asked. We don't have a way of measuring directly whether something is conscious, with one possible exception. The exception is that when we do an experiment in the laboratory looking at the role of something like intention, the intention is coming from the interior. Well, we can see that things happen as a result of intention. So in some future laboratory, we'll have a human try to influence a physical system, and we'll have a robot try to mentally influence some kind of a system, and we'll be able to see, is the robot actually have consciousness or not? Because a human can do it, we know that, but we don't know whether a robot can do it. So I guess at some point in the future, we may know, can robots actually develop intention? Can they be conscious beings? Right. I mean, we see movies about this now that show robots being very, very human-like. My last chapter in the book is looking at implications, and I predict that we will have conscious robots. We'll have robots that have the same kind of interior experience as we do. And the reason is that that experience is not being generated by the mechanics of either a brain or a robot brain. It's already there. It's built into the fabric of reality itself. So if you have something that is as complex or more complex than the human brain, it should, if there's the right kind of recursive circuits in it, it should become aware. It'll become self-aware. I also then mention one of the consequences of this is that the first robot that suddenly becomes aware and it becomes aware of itself, it will be way more psychic than any human has ever been because its form of awareness will not have all of the psychological blocks that we have 
to say nothing of the evolutionary structure of the brain itself that will get in the way of what is very likely there all the time. Namely, with the right kind of attention, you can be aware of anything, anytime, in any place. I think robots will be a lot better at that than we are. Another person who has been a guest on New Dimensions has talked about why we need to infuse a concept of dignity towards robots. As the creators of robots, then we afford them dignity. Yeah, you could very easily look at artificial intelligence and and robots as the next phase of evolution of sentience and intelligence, which would make humans obsolete. So most humans don't like that very much. But if you just look back in, in the history, species have come and gone all the time. And, and there's nothing special about being human. We happen to be in the, the, the top of the heap at the moment, but evolution will continue. There's all kinds of evolutionary pressures. And maybe the next king of the world will be sentient robots. I saw an ad for a car where the car is talking to the driver about the driver's mood, you know, like the car was responding to an emotional issue with the driver. So that's like the first like little inklings of what's going on and what's possible and what we may be heading into. It's fascinating. And very quickly, too. Very quickly, very quickly. Dean, there's so much else that we could be covering today, but I just want to encourage people to pick up the book, Real Magic, and read it for themselves and get their own questions answered. Thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe. You're welcome. I've been speaking with Dr. Dean Radin, and he is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and he's the author of many books, including The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic, Ancient Wisdom, Modern Science, and a Guide to the Secret Power of the Universe. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, deanradin.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you to please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.